one of the things that came to mind, uh, and it was actually the children's choir that made me think of it, was that in this time, God actually tells all of us that he wants us to enjoy our heart's desire to some extent. It assumes it's a healthy desire. Uh, if you want to eat paste, he's not saying it's the feast. Buy all the Elmer's glue you want, you know, and just start chugging it down. Healthy desires, but he wants us to. He wants us to indulge in those healthy desires at the feast, even telling us, set aside some of your money. I'm commanding you to do it because I know what will happen if you don't. It will go to all the bills and all the rest, and I need you to focus on these things at that time. I need you to experience some of what you desire in this world that I've created. Why? Why? Because we're picturing a time when he will receive the desires of his heart. And he wants us to have a taste of what that feels like because he longs to enjoy that himself. Among other reasons, he says very explicitly, so you will learn to fear the eternal, your God. And that's something I'd I'd like to key off here in the introduction a bit. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. You know, a lot of us have a few favorite passages here and there in the Bible about various times. And this is one of mine for a particular reason. There's really just one turn of phrase. I've always had a fascination with words and uh, and the crafting of them and putting certain words together. Uh, it helps a little bit now that I'm in managing editorial for the church. So if anything is misspelled or something in a magazine, that's that's my fault. I'm sorry. Um, actually, that's what my wife told me to tell Mr. Senna. I probably didn't notice that I was speaking today because I was busy reviewing it for spelling errors and uh, and punctuation problems. Rife. Absolutely rife. What's, what's, that was terrible. Uh, let's see. Jeremiah chapter 33. We have a time here we'll talk about in a little more detail related to the second exodus. It's kind of difficult coming in the middle of the feast. You don't know exactly what everybody has already talked about. Uh, I just heard a lot of food. What's up? You know, just food, 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 food. Oh, it's this great sermon about food and now I'm hungry. I want to go somewhere. So anyway, I've heard actually wonderful things about the messages here. And I know Mr. Ames went through a lot of prophecy and a lot of the sequence and so probably touched on the second exodus in some way. I wouldn't be surprised if he had. I know it's one of his favorite topics. But here in Jeremiah chapter 33, we read a prophesied time that we're here to talk about. Starting in verse 7. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, Jeremiah 33, verse 7, And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. We know when the millennium begins, there's going to be a lot of destruction. Every city will be shaken, but there will be this process of rebuilding. He says, verse 8, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me, to him, he shall feel these things. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. It's a remarkable turn of phrase. 
that there will be such good, such blessing, such wonders during that time that people will naturally fear and tremble because of it. You know, fear is one of those words that sounds like a bad word. And it can be. You know, if something's uh, uh, terrifying, it, it, it can be bad. But we've lost so much of what words mean, the richness of them. I, I've made this point before in a number of places, just to repeat for the sake of uh, context, like the word terrible. In the old King James, terrible would be used to describe God sometimes, that he is terrible and mighty. And yet in our day, it always means something bad. Always something bad. In fact, it's kind of a weak sort of bad these days. People will throw out words like this uh, without any consideration like, uh, well, how is the chicken? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's just terrible. And you want to go, did you bow down before the chicken? Did you kneel and say, praise the chicken, which is, has caused such fear in me? No, we just mean it didn't, it didn't taste very good. But when God is described as terrible... It's trying to connect him with a, an experience of him that shakes you on the inside in a fundamental kind of way. It's like the word awe and something being awesome. Like if you like the chicken, you say, man, that was awesome. It was the most awesome chicken ever. Oh, I'd like another one. So good. It was awesome. And God is awesome. He actually is. I'm not saying we can't use those words. The meaning of the words change. If you have an awesome chicken sandwich, you tell Mr. Senna. I had an awesome chicken sandwich, man. Your sermon helped me enjoy this even more. I can't wait to share a chicken sandwich with the saints, you know, in the millennium, you know, best chicken sandwich ever. That's fine. It's awesome. Words change. But as a result, then we have to find other words. We have to do something. And fear is one of those words. The people here, it's not that they'll be afraid. It's not that they're actually going to be somehow, oh, this is all so wonderful. I'm, I'm scared. But when you are truly terrified, I don't know if you've ever really been terrified. If you've gotten some amazing news in your life, whether it was something truly horrific or for that matter, truly astounding, and you were shaken on the innermost parts of you where you can't think of anything else, where it fills your mind and you just, you just can't think of anything else. Every thought is oriented towards that thing to the point that your hands are shaking. That's fear and trembling, whether good or bad. And God says the times that are coming, the times he wants all of us to focus on during these days, the time he wants all of us to see as more real will cause people to feel that way. They will see the good that he does and they will fear and tremble. And during these days, these feast days, he wants us to have some of that. Whatever small taste we can. And that's the focus of my sermon today. What I want to try to accomplish is I want to help us see those days more fully. And I've thought for years, I, I, I try and I don't always succeed. So if it's a failure, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it works. I, it, it's, it's hard, right? Sometimes we don't, sometimes we don't give enough credit to how hard some of these things are. We teach our children to pray, which is good. I hope that you are actively teaching your children to pray. But, you know, we are asking them to talk to someone who is invisible uh, and generally doesn't talk back. If they're talking back to your child, let somebody know, right? But you're asking them to pray to God. And it's not they don't talk to anybody else who doesn't talk back, who they can't see and interact with. And I remember with our boys trying to make an explanation, trying to help them understand it. And I said, well, imagine talking to Nani, oh, mother-in-law. Imagine you're called Nani, and for some reason the phone 
only lets you talk to her, but she can't talk to you. And you can't see her because it's on the phone, but you can tell her things and she listens and she, she acts in your life and she does things, but just struggling, trying to help them understand what prayer is so that it's it's not just some ritual they do well same thing with the millennium god wants us to see it he wants us to see this time as 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 clearly as we can as clearly as is possible we won't take the time to turn there but for instance in hebrews 11 when god is speaking of moses it talks about how he acted as if he saw god now we know eventually he did god allowed him a vision of himself he actually showed up and covered Moses so he couldn't see his face. But then when he was turned around, he, he uncovered Moses' face and he could see God's back as God proclaimed the name of the Lord. But this was before then. This was when he was even in Pharaoh's house. And it says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He'd rather to suffer affliction with God's people. Why? Because it says the reward was more real to him. He saw the God of Israel. And that God was more real than Pharaoh. It was more real than Pharaoh's chariots and his gold and his power and his might and his swords and his army and his spears. God was more real to him. And let me be up front. That's hard. At least it's hard for me. If it's easy for all of you, that's great. Don't tell me. It'll just make me depressed. I don't want to know because I know it's hard for me. You know what's easy for me to see? is the traffic uh, in Charlotte trying to get to work. That's way easy to see. Especially that one guy that cut me off. Oh, I see him really, really, really well. You know, what's easier to see in your life? You know, is it your boss, your coworkers, uh, the argument you had with your spouse that morning over the toast of all things? All these things are incredibly easy to see. But God wants this to be sharply in our vision. He wants us to see it. What does he say in Matthew 6, 33? Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. They'll be taken care of. Focus on this first. You have to see this. There are times in your life that are coming and some of you have already experienced them. There's times in mine when the only thing that gets us through is knowing that that future is more real than what we're going through right now. That's the only thing that carries us on to the next time is knowing the time I pictured last year at the Feast of Tabernacles is more real than this. Is more real than him or more real than her or more real than this problem, more real than this pain. And this feast is a time where God has actually said, tell you what, take seven days and focus on it. Make it real as best you can. And it's not easy, but strive to do so. Strive to do so. Uh, I, I asked the, there at the, uh, at the other feast site, I asked, uh, Uh, Some of the kids to think about what would a house be like in the millennium? If you could just design your own house in the millennium, what would it be like? And so some of them drew me pictures. I just want to show because one day I want to see them and say that I showed it to everybody in Kentucky and that they're, and that they're famous. So there was one. It's like a mansion. It's got glitter ink. So I'm trying to hold it really carefully. Uh, there's a girl. Guys use glitter ink. I'm not trying to judge. I'm just saying. And these two were amazingly similar. They were both uh, castles because these girls wanted to, I guess, live in a castle. So I asked one in particular, I said, well, does this make you a princess then? It's like, no, no, don't just assume. I don't want to, I want to be a princess, you know. She goes, you know what, it's, it's not a castle, it's a, it's a tower. That's what it is, it's a tower. And I said, well, you know, princesses live in towers too. And she said, oh, yeah, you got me there. Well, wow. <laughs> 
Yeah, but she has an alligator in the moat. I mean, that's really serious. And I asked why. And she says, well, when the, when the, when the bridge door comes down, it smacks the alligator. And I said, well, that's, that doesn't sound very millennial, you know? Uh, she said, well, alligators, they're, they're kind of mean. Well, they won't be then. I was trying to say, but anyway, it was, just say it was a long conversation, but it was a, but it was very nice. And, but I appreciate that because children are, are helpful. Children have imaginations, right? And they're willing to employ those imaginations at times when it seems silly. At times when it's just, it's like, why are you wasting your time? You know what? Because I'm a kid. And because there's a time to be a kid. And there's a time to waste time imagining stuff. And at least for me, God tells me, look, for seven days plus that last day at the end, take some time to imagine. Take some time to expect that kingdom like a child and take the time to put something together and really focus on it. Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, God's word guarantees you that the best of what you can imagine, even if it's off, you're going to speculate, you're going to be off, but the best of what you can imagine will never be better than what it's really going to be like. You're never going to think, man, I just I thought it'd be better. I thought it'd be better than this. Never going to happen. So today's kind of a little experiment, what I'd like to do. I want to focus on just a few particular aspects of the millennium. If, I, if I'm asking you to do it, I need to be really willing to help. And there's something I used to do, and I, I had done it for, for years, every once in a while, every few feasts. I think I did it the first time in Dallas. And I have a sort of fake letter that I wrote, as if someone's in the millennium and they're trying to write to us today, write to you in particular, about what they appreciate or something. And I wasn't actually going to put this particular sermon together. I had some other ideas for the feast, uh, for the sermon I was going to give in this slot. And I was actually talking with my wife, and, and she's the one who convinced me, said, no, do that. I think that's a really good idea. Go ahead and do that. So if you don't like it, it is so her fault. If it's a, if it's a flop, man, she's right in the front row. Go get her. Get her uh, and let her know. But what I've done, and it will involve some speculation, okay? Big alert. Some of this is speculative. It really is. Uh, and, and my attempt at being imaginative to a certain extent. What I've done is I've written three letters. Imagining it's someone from the millennium writing to us. Because wouldn't that be amazing if we could do that? Wouldn't it be amazing if Mr. Sennett said, well, it's the fifth day of the feast and it's time machine day. You know, I've got a time machine in the back that I've been working on. And so we're all going to... I can't take you in it because, you know, you didn't buy tickets. So it was something, you know, whatever. But I do have the ability to take people from the millennium and bring them here. And we're going to put them up on stage and they're going to tell us about their experiences. That would be great. That would be amazing. And I can't do that. But I can attempt to simulate it in some kind of, you know, maybe sort of sad, superficial way. So that's what I'm going to do. I've written these three letters. But before I do each one, I want, I want you to understand that even though they're speculative, and fictional, one, not only do we know the future will be better than this, but secondly, I try to at least ground them in what we know is true. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons to feed your mind with God's word on a consistent basis is so that even in your imaginations, it's standing on a foundation of the truth, right? Hopefully more and more accurately as time goes on. So that's what we're going to do. And the title of the sermon today is Three Letters from the Millennium. Three Letters from the Millennium. Thank you for the extra height, by the way. I'm glad that Mr. Senna planned the lectern business up here for, for normally heighted people. Thank you, Mr. Senna. So, Mr. Sandor, Mr. Senna will 
pay for all your back surgery and stuff later. So, All right. What I'd like to talk about first is the second exodus just a bit. The second exodus. That's what uh, Mr. Ames has, has called it frequently. When you read the Old Testament, you repeatedly see uh, references to the exodus from Egypt long ago. Uh, in fact, it's really a cornerstone of the identity of ancient Israel. Even today, we talk about it so much during the first part of the Holy Days, right? The Passover season and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Many of us will give sermons related to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. For good cause, it was really, in many ways, the defining moment of the nation of Israel. It's where God established them and made them. And God is great with that. He inspired the Old Testament. King David, thousands of years later, is still talking about the Exodus as an example of Israel, as an example of uh, hundreds of years later, as an example of what makes Israel special. And something they should hearken back that, does God really love us? Yes, He does. The Exodus. And they remind themselves and go back to that. But God says that is going to change. God says that in the time to come, they will no longer hearken back to the Exodus in the same way. Uh, turn to Jer- Hopefully you've already turned to Jeremiah. Just turn a few pages earlier to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Mr. Ames wrote a bit of the second Exodus in his most recent article in the Tomorrow's World magazine, The, uh, the World After World War III, which might I think uh, he kind of talked about some of that uh, here. It's a September-October magazine. So Jeremiah chapter 23, we read of parts of this. Jeremiah 23, I'll start in verse 7. We read in verse 7 of Jeremiah 23, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that they shall no longer say, as the Eternal lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but instead... As the eternal lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. That exodus, he says, will begin to replace the previous one. People will hearken back to that as evidence that God loves them and that God interacts with them and that God is caring for them. This Exodus where we know with the tribulation and such, Israelites will be spread across the nation, various nations of the world, uh, as slaves and as labor. And there'll be lessons learned in all of that. And they will look back to that time when God brought them. Uh, Turn earlier in the chapter to verse 3. Verse 3. God says here in Jeremiah 23, verse 3, But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. They're not just coming to a life of luxury, the Israelites from all over the world. They're coming to work. They're coming to be fruitful. They're coming to to work with their hands and to create uh, and to learn a lifestyle. There will be a lot of work to be done. Jerusalem will have to be rebuilt. But not just rebuilt, but glorified and expanded. Actually, turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos one of those people who say, okay, I can find Amos. I know I can. Whoa, first turn. I'm in Amos already. Totally cheating. Very nice. All right. Amos chapter 9. 
you're having a hard time finding it in my Bible, it starts around page 803. In the ministry, we only have like four jokes, and we use them all pretty, uh, pretty consistently. So in Amos chapter 9, we read about that. You know, it's one thing, and this is a good lesson for parents, since there is kind of a focus on that day. It's, uh, it's, it's easy to focus on making sure we're, we, uh, discipline and punish our children, you know, when they need that. And you notice how God does that. There's, there is punishment, but it's always coupled with restoration. It's always coupled with, uh, uh, with how to make things right and that things will be right. And he talks about that here in Amos 9 and verse 11. Amos 9 verse 11. God says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the eternal who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the eternal, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. There's going to be so much abundance that while they're harvesting, they can't harvest it fast enough. And the people are behind them ready to make more. It's like, we got to go, man. Hurry up. We can only eat it so fast. I know, but there's just so much. There'll be food aplenty. It's an amazing time. It says, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. You know, it's easy. I don't know how you've imagined it yourself. It's easy to think we would kind of arrive, the children of God are here. And then we're just sort of snapping our fingers and making everything better. But how do we learn? How are they going to learn? By doing a lot of this themselves with guidance. You know, sometimes, let me go ahead and get this out. It was actually a little bit of a theme there, and it'll help here sometimes, perhaps. It might help some of you. Sometimes you hear you're going to rule cities. And forgive yourself. Don't get upset at yourself. If your natural thought is to think, I don't want to rule cities. Some of you have thought that. I know you have. Not because it's like the 700 Club. Uh, you know, Pat Robbins would be like, someone out there, you sprained your ankle. I, 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 I hear you. I, I feel your prayers. Yeah, like 800 people watching the 700 Club sprain their ankle the previous week. You know, it's a good gamble. But anyway, that said, are they all going to call in and check in and say, nope, didn't sprain my ankle. Nope, didn't sprain my ankle. I'm not doing that. I just know that we're humans. And I know I've had that reaction sometimes. Like, well, I don't know if I'm really interested in ruling a city. You know, I don't know if I'm interested in being a governor of something. Uh, or some of you thought, I don't even know if I could. I don't know plumbing. I, I don't know urban planning. I don't really know how to, how do you design a safe city street or all the rest? Understand at least a couple things. Those kind of things, those details you could learn at college or whatever, uh, are just in practice. All those mechanical details of civil engineering and all the rest, that is the small stuff. Right? Don't sweat that small stuff. You know, when you're God, it says that with him, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. If you could learn it in a thousand years of study and practice, then as a resurrected, glorified God being, that's the first day. Right? Don't worry about those details. God isn't going to resurrect you and think, 
well, wow, let's see, you were a grandmother uh, for most of your life, and before that you were a, a housewife, and well, do you know anything about asphalt and laying streets or anything? I don't know what to do with you. That is the small stuff. That is picayune. That is nothing. Don't get me wrong. If you do those things, please keep doing them. But when it comes to what we'll be doing in the millennium, that's nothing. God can just, that, that is just technical knowledge. What is the hard work is developing character. You can't go to college and get a degree in character. You're doing the hard work to be prepared for whatever you will need to do in the millennium. Don't worry about the other details. And the other thing is, don't think of it as ruling 10 cities. Think of it as helping the people of 10 cities to know the way of life you have enjoyed for all these years. We think of rulership as as being lord over people. And too many parents, too many fathers, even too many mothers, think of it that way. When God says, who will be greatest among you? Those who is the servant of all, who sees himself as the lowest, who focuses not on telling others what to do, but on washing their feet for them. So think of ruling 10 cities, not like, I don't know what I would do. I know what you would do. You would love those people. If you're prepared to love 10 cities worth of people, that's exactly what he's looking for. So when you see these people, it may not be building the things for them, but helping them and guiding them as they do. He indicates here that people will come back and begin building these things and learning lessons, trying to do it the right way, not shortcutting things, not using unsafe materials, but trying to do it right. And he says in verse 15, I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the eternal, your God. Let's look at just a few more passages. Uh, Turn to Ezekiel 43. We certainly will not read all of these chapters, but all the chapters there at the end of Ezekiel deal with the temple that is going to be built. And there will be another temple. Ezekiel 43. I freely admit, without shame, that one of my life's dreams has been to build a replica of the Ezekiel temple out of Lego. Then you start looking at the prices of all those bricks and you think, you know, my dream is no longer that so much. My dream is to keep my money and, and, and feed myself and my children. But I do long to see it. Uh, there is this temple in, in the, the 40s, if you will, in Ezekiel. He talks and gives this minute details of the measurements and all the rest and how this is going to be constructed. And something Christ says here, we're just going to look at this one verse, Ezekiel 43 and verse 7. The God of the Old Testament inspires something here. Ezekiel 43 and verse 7. We read, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, nor they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. Jesus Christ talks about God's temple being a a house of prayer for all nations and we do know nations will come uh, and nations uh, will come to this place he says this will be the place of the soles of my feet 
I will walk these grounds. And he looks forward to that. That's going to take a lot of work. If you read about the details, I mean, God doesn't lay out a bunch of minute construction details without planning on something being built. He's looking forward to this. And the second exodus will involve that work. Uh, let's look at just a few more things. Oh boy, let's see. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60, before we get to the first letter. This is actually the, the, the longest setup. Isaiah 60. Because the Gentiles are involved in this as well. It's not just about Israel. God is an orderly God. God is not a respecter of persons. And it's vital to understand that. God does not somehow love one person more than another. You know, think of your children. Uh, now, if you do love one child more than all the others, please never tell them that. That would be absolutely horrible. Uh, and I, I doubt that you do. I know in my, my case, my kids, yes, there is one I love more than the others. And I... I don't. You know, but I do try to explain. Uh, it's, I don't love them all exactly the same, but, but, but amount is not the right talk. They have, each one has these amazing qualities, right, that draw me to them, uh, that I love to see in each of them. Uh, their quirks, even their foibles, even their faults to some extent. And man, do they have faults. Oh, oh I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway. You love each of them in different ways because each of them make you smile for different reasons, right? That's not the same as loving one more than another. And it's not the same as being a respecter of persons. And God gave his son for the whole world, we're told. But he does things in an order. Uh, he works with Israel to use Israel as a means for blessing the entirety of the world. Punishment comes on the whole world. Where does it start? Israel, that's kind of the way that works. You know, you get one, you get the other. Um, and in the millennium, God has a plan for the entire world. It's not just Israel. It's not just Israel. Uh, but we have to see it in context. In uh, Isaiah 60 and verse 1, we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the eternal is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the eternal will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the eternal. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar their silver and their gold with them to the name of the eternal your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he 
has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. Their royalty. It's very easy to think of this just as subservience and punishment. And there is a certain turning of the tables in the sense that many in authority in other nations will suppress Israel. But it's not just what comes up, you know, what goes around comes around. It's time to punish you too. That's not actually what you see when you read these verses carefully. And he continues, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Uh, let's save us a little bit of time. Jump to verse 13. It says, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet there's that statement again, the place of my feet, glorious. All the wealth of the world, people will be donating those things. They'll be sending cedar from Lebanon. They'll be sending all these materials. Why? To build up the new capital of the whole world. These ships will bring Israelites from afar, from their captivity and their lands, but also these materials. Verse 14. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the eternal, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Let's jump to chapter 61, verse 1. Now, this, these verses might be more familiar to you. Jesus Christ himself read from these verses uh, during his earthly lifetime and his ministry. Chapter 61 and verse 1. The spirit of the Lord eternal is upon me because the eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers, that is those from outside of Israel, shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the eternal. They shall call you the servants of our God. Uh, look at verse 11, the end of the chapter. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord eternal will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 8. And there's a reason for all of this. It's not just to bless Israel, but to inspire others as well. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but if you go back to Deuteronomy, God's talking, sorry, Moses is talking to Israel and explaining to them that God intends you to be a kind of people where the other nations around you will look on you and say, what nation has been so blessed as to have its God near them like this and to be given such laws of wisdom? Why? Just to make the nations envious? To a certain extent, yes, because we want what we see and what is good. And he wants them to want that. And he has to start somewhere. In Zechariah chapter 8, 
starting in verse 20. Thus says the eternal of hosts, peoples shall yet come, verse 20, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the eternal and seek the eternal of hosts. I myself will go also. That's kind of important. Uh, it's easy. Sometimes you see people kind of get things riled up like, hey, we ought to do this. Yeah, let's all do this. Let's go talk to them. See if they'll do this. Hey, y'all want to do that? Yeah, yeah. And when everything's riled up, the other guy just kind of sits back. It's like, whoo, well, I got them going. I'm going to get back to my chicken pot pie and my beer or, you know, whatever the case is. And he's like saying, no, look, I'm going. I don't care if you guys are going or not, but I'm going. Let's all go. And he's not talking about Israelites here. He's talking about people from all over the world. Verse 22. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the eternal of host in Jerusalem and to pray before the eternal. Why does he say strong nations? Because in this world, if you're strong, you're in charge, right? Part of why we want America to be great again, if you go by the slogans and the caps, is so we can be in charge a whole lot more like we used to be. You know, we like that. We like being able to boss everybody around and have them do what we say because they like our money and all the rest. Uh, we want to be in charge. And so today, that's being strong. It's hard to resist a country when they can send a cruise missile through your window while you're sleeping, right? But he's saying even the strong nations will say, what is going on in Israel? Let's go pray to that God. Let's go seek him because we'd rather have what they have than what we've built before. In fact, read the next verse, verse 23. Thus says the eternal of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Understand they're not grabbing them by the wrist or even putting their arm lovingly around their shoulder. It is an act of humility to simply go up and just grasp the sleeve like a child and say, please let us go with you. What you have, we want. What you have, we need. Can you imagine the soldiers of ISIS doing that today? Going up to a Jewish man and saying, please let us learn what you know. Can you imagine the mullahs of Iran and everyone else going up to a Jew, just a Jewish citizen, no one of import, no one of power, and just saying, you're one of them, please show us the way. What's the quickest way to get there? Can we come there too? They will voluntarily want to come. It won't be a matter of bringing the nations in chains. It'll be a matter of opening a door to them. Let's look at just one more passage before I get to this first item. It's in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. Let's capture a couple of verses. And one, I think, gives important context for the other. Isaiah 14 and verse 1. Again, more about this time after the second exodus. Isaiah 14 and verse 1 says, For the eternal will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them, bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the eternal. They will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. Again, not oppress their oppressors, but rule, guide, judge, 
serve. Serve in that way. And again, this is not involuntarily. Again, verse 1, they will cling to the house of Jacob. They will want to know. And let me say one more thing. I, I, I talked a little bit about politics in the last one, and I want to say this and move on. Um, we know that during the millennium, God's kingdom will be completely capitalist. I'm just kidding. It's not true. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody. Uh, it is going to be socialist. No, I'm just kidding there too. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not going to be socialist. That's not far enough. It's going to be absolutely communist. And hopefully by now you know I am not being serious. There's not an ist or an ism of this world today that covers everything God is going to do. We know it's not going to be uh, the state owns everything because we already know God does own everything, right? Uh, and when he's the state, it's kind of like that. And yet, what does he say? We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but Micah chapter 4, verse 4, for instance, every man will sit under his vine and his fig tree. There will be private ownership. Okay, you will own things because we're better stewards of the things we own. We care about them and want them to flourish. And so, yep, laissez-faire capitalism, hands off. It's not going to be that way either. I'm sorry, any central government that says, hey, you know what? Every third year, uh, give me 10% of what you make to support the poor and the needy. Oh, that sounds like socialism. Yeah, I'm God, do it. Uh, that's just the way it is. You know, that's that's how I do things, Right. You know, God, if you let me maximize all the harvest, I'll probably give more. God says, man, that sounds like a great theory. Still leave the corners uh, for the poor. Wow, that sounds like you're kind of butting into my business, God. Yeah, I am. I'm God, right? So uh, you're just going to do it. That's just the way that works. There is no political, uh, sociological, psychological, any kind of logical theory Okay, that doesn't sound right. Any kind of man-made theory that we come up with, some form of government, some form of politics, nothing beats the Bible. It will be completely different from all of those. Uh, so I hope this feast, some of you considered a bit of a fast from Fox News, uh, MSNBC, uh, the Wall Street Journal. It's good to keep up with the news. But if it's firing up in you those same kind of thoughts, like, man, I sure wish they'd leave my president alone, or man, I sure wish their president would shut up, uh, then you shut that up. You tell those parts of your brain they don't belong here at the Feast of Tabernacles. Mr. Trump has no solution. Mrs. Clinton has no solution. Mr. Sanders has no solution. We're here to celebrate the actual solution. And so stop thinking about all of that. And so this letter is meant to help us do that, this first one. This is a letter from someone named James. And again, he's not real. Okay, I made this up. And if it's not very good, I am really sorry. Uh, in fact, I'm always, I don't want the kids walking away saying, was that really? Because my kids will do that. Uh, kids will take things so wonderfully innocently. I remember my kids, they would see Dr. Meredith on television at services when they're really young, right? Uh, and they'd say later, was that God? Was that a video from God today? It's like, no, no, that was, that's Dr. Meredith. He's a person. Uh, you know, God doesn't make videos for us to see his services. And then the next Sabbath, it's a video from Mr. Ames. So was it God today? Was that? No, no. You wonderful child. You know, they're so innocent, right? Uh, so even kids, I, I made this up. Okay. You make up your stuff, right? You make up your stuff. I made this up to try to help me picture these things a little, make them a little more real. All right. So a let this is supposed to be like a letter, someone from the millennium who's writing this to you uh, to explain some aspect of their life. It says, greetings. My name is James. 
and I'm writing to you from the millennium to tell you part of my story. I've been asked to specifically focus on some of my early experiences. In what feels like a previous life, I was a heroin junkie in Detroit. What a shock it was to learn that I was actually an Israelite of the tribe of Manasseh. I remember riding one of the first ships from Tarshish, uh, what you would have called Spain in 2017, taking previously held captive Israelites from the nations of their captivity to their new homeland in Israel. It all seemed so unreal in so many ways, yet the events of the years leading up to that trip had taught me that just about anything was possible. While on the way, I befriended one of the sailors of the ship, a young man from Alicante named Santiago, as well as another passenger named Simon. When we arrived on the shores of the land of Israel, it was clear that there was a lot of work being undertaken. Though the reign of Jesus Christ and the saints had only just begun, the work of rebuilding and glorifying Israel and Jerusalem specifically was already well underway. Santiago was going to be staying as a representative of his nation, working under Israelites there, helping with the construction and learning what he can of this new way of life so that he can take it back to his own country in the future. I learned that I would become a part of the construction crew as well, working in masonry and stonework, while Simon got the shock of his life to learn that he was of Levite heritage. He was told that his last name, Cohen, was derived from the Hebrew word for priest, and he was of the line of Zadok. While I was moving marble and granite, he would be undergoing training as a Levite to support the work of ministry of the new temple that was being erected under the Levitical family of Zadok, which in turn was under the divine direction of the children of God, who served as both kings and priests under Christ, in the order of Melchizedek. I began to love my work and to take a right pride in what I did. So many years in the past, I had wasted thinking of nothing but myself and how to feed my craving and where to steal what I needed to buy more of what I shouldn't have. Now the only remnants of that life were the needle tracks I still bore on my arms. Arms that found new life and purpose in shaping and moving the stones that would become the new temple and the headquarters of Jesus Christ on earth. Santiago, who worked on my crew under my direction, received the shock of his life one day. One of the children of God had descended toward us while we were working on a new cornerstone, saying in that voice that always demanded attention, Santiago, I would speak with you. As he descended in glory, we could hardly look at him for his brightness, and we knelt on the ground and felt the air vibrate with power as he approached. Then, suddenly, we felt it stop, and we lifted our eyes to see him. With his glory reduced, he appeared to us as he would have in his physical life before his transformation, and Santiago was shocked to see that he, too, was a Spaniard. He explained to us that years ago, before the return of Jesus Christ, he had been on vacation in Tierra del Fuego, on the southernmost tip of South America, 
and heard a funny little radio broadcast out of a funny little radio station declaring wondrous things about tomorrow's world in the Spanish language. He said it had been the beginning of another life, and it was that life that he wanted to share with Santiago, letting me know that he was going to borrow Santiago for a little talk I saw the two of them strolling the new temple grounds, talking, with Santiago listening excitedly and sometimes tearfully for hours until he returned and we finished our work for the day. I didn't ask him what they discussed, as I felt it might have been private, but I could see it in his eyes. The hope that our new king holds out for all of us became much more real to him that day. And it did for me as well. As I wrap up this letter, I note that I'm ending my day like I always do. I'm sitting outside my house under the fig tree that I planted with my own hands as I watch Simon, the new Levite, walk away from our daily end-of-the-day tradition. We sit under the tree and chat, telling each other about our day and what we learn. I lovingly call him a Levite nerd, and he lovingly calls me a stone jockey. And we part ways until tomorrow. I look to my left, and there's my three-year-old chasing after a couple of bear cubs as their mother watches on, unconcerned. And I look to my right, and I see my child's mother looking on, just as unconcerned and just as lovely as the day I met her here in the New Jerusalem that we are building. During my life in the gutters of Detroit, I never would have imagined that this life was possible. And now I sit under my own tree, outside my own home, laughing at my own child while holding hands with my own wife. All thanks to the one who descended on the Mount of Olives and made me his own. All right, first letter. That was from fictional James. And again, we don't know what it's really going to be like in detail, right? All we know is lives are going to be changed. And anything that we can imagine, it's at least that good, if not better. Because the next one's going to concern a young woman named Rana in Egypt. She's going to be a, a, a teenager. And I am not a teenage Egyptian girl, so please forgive me if I get something wrong. Uh, Imagination, right? Imagination. Nor do I want to be. I guess you need to say that these days. Nor do I want to be. All right, but we need a few scriptures first. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Now, this has surely been read. I even think Mr. Weston read uh, part of Zechariah 14. And this part, actually, the opening message. Zechariah chapter 14. We'll start in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against, came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the eternal of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the eternal of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Now, we're going to start in verse 18 here in a second. And I, I almost feel bad for the letter that I, that I made for this because I always try to stress something. 
the first two letters of the alphabet that begin verse 18 are important. It says if, right? Maybe Egypt will come. Maybe they will will do well. But it says in verse 18, it says, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the eternal strikes the nations which who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It says if they don't, maybe Egypt will do it. Maybe their leaders begin to say, I don't think I'm going to go up to this Jewish God, you know, there in a, a, you know, now that's in Jerusalem. And someone says, Oh, I don't know. I just read in Zechariah chapter, uh, you know, it says, if we don't go, it's not going to get rain. I like rain. Let's go. Oh, what are we thinking? Let's go ahead and go. It does say if we do have options. So maybe they will go. Um, but we do know surely God wouldn't put this in otherwise that some nations won't, including very potentially Egypt. It's a lot of passionate hatred between various parts of society in the Middle East. And the concept of going to a Jewish Messiah, regardless of what you've been through, hate goes deep. And who knows how long it might take for some of that. But is it just the rod that God is going to use? Is it just the stick? You know, if you've reared children or even reared animals, you know, it's not just a matter of the stick. It's also the carrot. Right? Is God just going to say, you better show up or I'm just going to be on your back all day long? No, God promises wonders. And nations will see those things. They're not grasping the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, please let me go with you. I'm tired of the stick on my back. It's because they see something they want. And many of them, surely, just like Rahab did in her society, will recognize that God... He is God. And what are we doing here? Why are we not there? Turn to Isaiah 35. Again, a verse you may have read already. But during the feast, you do have God's permission to read some verses more than once. It's all right. Isaiah chapter 35. Mr. Sen is probably looking at his watch and worrying that I'm going to go over time. He is so right to worry. All right, Isaiah chapter 35. Starting in verse 5. Again, we read, if you've read it before, and I wouldn't be surprised if you had, Isaiah 35, starting in verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. If that doesn't move us because it should, it's because we don't know enough of these people, because we're not investing in their lives enough, because we don't talk to some of them enough and know what life is like for them. But if you've even seen a YouTube video of some of these people that have been deaf their whole lives and then for the first time because of some technological breakthrough, they're able to hear the sound of the voice of their grandchildren or their children. And you see this shock and this joy in their face. And you recognize God wants that shock everywhere. He wants everyone who has suffered the kinds of things we suffer, having bodies that have deteriorated over 6,000 years and live in a world where our standards have deteriorated for 6,000 years and our environment we've degraded for 6,000 years. He longs to fix that and say, you know what? Here's what your children look like. Here's what it feels like to walk. Here's the sound of your voice singing in your own ears. He longs for that. 
And if we, if this doesn't impact us, it could be because we don't know enough of those people and I would encourage us all to get to know them. Because what he wants to do for people like that is a fixture of the time we're celebrating today. And picking on Egypt, we're in Isaiah. Let's turn to Isaiah 19. Even if Egypt doesn't come up at first, we know it'll come around. Isaiah chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 19 of Isaiah 19. Actually, let's start in verse 18. Isaiah 19 and verse 18. We read here, In that day, Isaiah 19, verse 18, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the eternal of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. They won't be Hebrew. They won't be speaking Hebrew. They will be Egyptian, but they will turn. And in their own language, they'll realize, I should turn my words towards him. I should be praying to him, not the God of the Quran, not anything else. It's the God of Israel. He should be my God. Verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the eternal in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the eternal at its border. And it will be a sign for a witness to the eternal of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the eternal because of their oppressors and he will send them a savior, a mighty one, and he will deliver them. You know, this is just to me one small example of how we know the Bible was inspired and wasn't simply written by a bunch of human beings. Because no leader in any nation makes up and invents prophecy where God is looking forward to blessing your enemies. Where God is looking forward to saving them. It's all about, yeah, our God's going to crush you. He's going to get you. Not stuff like this. God looks forward to blessing every Egyptian on the face of the earth. And being their God just as well. Verse 21. Then the eternal will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the eternal in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the eternal and perform it. The eternal will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the eternal and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. He will claim them all and find the joys in them that we find in individual children for all their particular differences and all their nuances. And he will find joy in every one of them. So, the second letter I wrote, and I, by the way, I know these are cheesy, okay? Uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're, they're thinking, well, that's a pretty cheesy letter that he wrote. I, I am a cheesy person. Totally. I like cheese, actually. I, uh, and so I, I can't apologize because I like cheese. Anyway, so I am a cheesy person. And so these, I know these are cheesy, but, you know, write your own letter. You know, do it, do it yourself. All right. Here we go. This one, uh, starts off. Hello. My name is Rana and I am a 17 year old Egyptian girl. I'm writing you from this time very early in the millennium about an incident that occurred almost a year ago when I was 16. At the time of Jesus' return, no country in the world had more unexploded landmines 
than my own nation of Egypt, the terrible remnants of our many wars with Israel. While I had not stepped on one myself, I was told that years before, as a very small child, I had been near when one went off in the part of the desert that we in Egypt call the Devil's Garden. The resulting explosion virtually shredded the lower half of my body, leaving me unable to walk, unable to have children, and in constant pain. As the only child of my parents, much of their time from that time forward has been spent in their care for me and the never-ending pain of my body, mangled and covered in scar tissues, became what defined my life from my earliest memories. After the return of Jesus Christ, my father was one of the few who wanted to attend the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, but he was unable to persuade many, and consequently, our nation has been ravaged over the year that followed with no rain. The resulting drought began to have its effect on the will of some of our stubborn leaders. But even after several months, many were determined to see the drought out and maintain their resistance. My father, Yusuf, became more vocal as the weeks went by, explaining to the elders and others that we should embrace the God in Jerusalem as our own and that our pride was a shameful sin before him. The backlash against him and our family was terrible. One particular day, I remember sitting on the ground against the wall of our home where my father would often place me so I could watch the faces of people in the street. I had often dreamed of the simple pleasure of being able to walk the streets of my own hometown, but at least seeing the faces of those walking by as they went from place to place would bring me a small measure of comfort as I imagined myself being able to walk beside them. But there was no comfort in the faces that I saw that day. Tired of my father's preaching about our rebellion, the crowd turned on us and our family. And before he could carry me inside, they began pelting us with rocks and stones, accusing us of abandoning our heritage for the sake of some Jewish God and weakening the nation during its strongest trial. I had never seen faces so angry and so bitter, and I was terrified as their stones struck the wall and ground all around me. But one face was different. His demeanor was calm, and he was not yelling like the others. Very slowly and deliberately, he began walking toward me. And as he moved out of the crowd in my direction, the yelling and the stoning stopped for some reason reason, as all became silent. Upon reaching where I was cowering on the ground, he looked at me and spoke to me loud enough so that all could hear, saying, I come on behalf of the one who now reigns in Jerusalem, for whom your family now suffers. He has heard your parents' prayers and yours. And what I do here, I do in his name. Then he reached his hand toward me and said simply, rise, Rana, and walk. Before I even comprehended the fullness of what he had said, I took his hand, and the moment I did so, the pain I had known all my life disappeared, and I stood for the first time in all the years I could remember. 
I looked down in disbelief and saw a beautiful new body, untouched by a single scar, with two perfect legs which seemed to be begging me to use them. I leapt forward to embrace my healer, only to find that he had vanished and was no longer there. But my legs would not allow me the luxury of pausing to wonder where he had gone, and I ran to embrace my father and mother, who were kneeling and praying and praising God with tears in their eyes. I prayed with them in joy, but could not kneel to do so, as the wonder of being able to walk and run and dance compelled me to run around the house from person to person, to ask if they could see me, to tell me that all of this was real. And as I did so, the faces that had been so twisted in hate only moments before began to fill with tears themselves and the crowd began to kneel with hands raised in praise to the God that they had rejected and in cries for His mercy and His forgiveness. I'm now 17 years old and I'm accompanying my father and mother and many of our townspeople as a part of our nation's delegation to Jerusalem to observe our first Feast of Tabernacles. The caravan makes for a large and motley crew assembled of the collected wagons, donkeys, and camels of a humbled nation that has suffered much but learned much and which longs to learn even more. The trip is long, and I am riding most of the way, but my father has promised to let me know when we come within a day's journey of Jerusalem. He knows that I will want to walk the rest of the way. All right, that's the second letter. I know in the church in the past, people used to, uh, we had these like the Jerusalem news or these kind of, some of you remember those in the old worldwide, you know, those. So that's, give me a break. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to do, something like that. So, uh, all right, this last part, and I'll go through really quickly, Mr. Senna. We've only got like a half an hour left or so. So don't worry, I'm almost, I'm almost done. <laughs> Now, this last one, actually, some of you have, have heard before. It's one that I've, that I've done before, this last letter. And uh, it's, I've kept it from an unnamed person, someone who, who I didn't attach a name to, like Rana, which is a real Egyptian name. I, I locked it up. But only the best for you guys. Um, and I want to talk just briefly then about you and about your service to others in the millennium. This is, a, I think, the last verse we'll turn to. Uh, we're in Isaiah already. Turn to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. And I'll go over this part quickly. Isaiah chapter 30. If you haven't heard it at the feast so far, hopefully you've read it yourself because for many of us, this is one of our favorite passages about the millennium to come and our role in it. Isaiah chapter 30, and I'll start in verse 19. We read here, For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Isaiah 30 and verse 20, the next verse. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. We long to be that. We long to take what God has given us, filtered out from all the biases and weirdness that we personally bring, whereas the pure, unadulterated truth of God and help these people when they start going away, they shouldn't to tell them don't go that way. Now, how would we appear to these? He says, your eyes shall see them. 
And I'm just going to throw out a bunch of things. This is speculative because God doesn't give us a lot. That's all he says right here, right? But we will be glorified. First uh, John 3, verses 1 through 3, tell us that when we see the resurrected Jesus Christ, we'll be like him. We'll see him like he is. And that tells me that I'm free to at least speculate that in the resurrected and glorified life, I should be able to do as Jesus does. And as he interacted with people after his resurrection, and that was in many different ways. I, we don't have the time to turn to all of them. I might just give you the chapters. But in John chapter 20, we note that when Mary first saw him after his resurrection, she thought he was the gardener. Is that because her eyes were filled with tears or something like that? Well, there's other things to suggest that may not have been the case. Uh, Luke chapter 24, Christ talks to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they don't recognize him at first. It says there that their eyes were kept um, from recognizing him. Now, does that mean that spiritually that God worked a miracle and their eyes couldn't recognize him? Or is it because he was different? Actually, a parallel passage in Mark chapter 16 talks about him appearing in another form. That's the New King James words, in another form uh, to those particular disciples. Uh, what we do know is that God, Jesus Christ, resurrected, had the ability to not be recognized until he wanted to be recognized and could work with some where they had no idea that's who that was. Uh, also in John chapter 20, when Christ manifests himself to Thomas, Thomas had said, look, I don't care what you guys say. The dead don't rise again. There's no way that he's alive again. I don't, I can't even dare to hope that that's true. I'm going to have to put my fingers in the holes in his hand and put my hand in the hole in his side where that spear went to kill him for me to believe what you are saying. He couldn't dare to hope. And then Jesus Christ manifested himself and said, Thomas, put your fingers in the holes. Put your hand here in my side and don't be unbelieving, but believe. Poor doubting Thomas. He's going to come up in the resurrection and go, what did you guys call me back then? You know, <laughs> what was that again? Say that again. Really? 2000 years. I was known as doubting Thomas. Man, that's rough. You know, um, now, does that mean Jesus Christ spends eternity with all of his wounds? Does that mean that all of us, you know, if I, if, uh, if I have to be napping in the middle of a road and a, a big steamroller comes over me, you know, and then in the millennium, I'll be like Captain Flat guy. Like, well, I, I guess this is what. Personally, I believe Jesus manifested those things because Thomas said specifically, that's what I need to believe. And to make his point, Jesus said, is this what you need? Then this is what you have. Don't be unbelieving, but believe, Thomas. Can we manifest in ways that people will need of us? Of course, there's Revelation chapter 1 where he appears in glory, right? With a band of gold around him, a face shining like the sun with eyes of fire. Uh... Will we appear like that all the time? I don't see that. You know, Job chapter 38, you know, he spoke to Job through a whirlwind, right? Because that was what Job needed at the time, a display of his power. Uh, he spoke to uh, uh, Elijah as a still small voice, right? He does what is needed for the time. If you're dealing in the millennium with someone about to contemplate terrible violence, you might appear differently than you do to a little child who's lost its way in the woods, Right? The guy contemplating violence, sharpening a stick, thinking, man, I'm going to get what that guy has. You might appear like Revelation 1. No, you're not. Eyes of fire like, ah! You know, and after he soils himself and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And where he at least has to control himself due to fear before he learns there truly is a better way. But the child lost in the woods, you know, where's mommy and daddy? I will take you, child, you know, and eyes of fire, you know. Oh, child fainted. I don't understand. You know, whatever. You scoop up the child and take him. You know, you might appear like a child yourself. 
Uh, personal fantasy. It's not the letter. Personal fantasy I've put together is, uh, I've, I think I've used this before, but, uh, a child law. Cause the thing is, the millennium is going to make everybody perfect. Children are still children. Parents are still going to make mistakes. And if anything, isn't it easier to make mistakes when you feel safer? When you know the bears aren't going to eat your kids and the snakes aren't going to bite your kids and the mountain lions aren't going to eat your kids, isn't it easier to not worry about them or think about them as much when they're playing out in the woods? And yet, isn't it just going to be just as easy for children to lose their way? Children won't become suddenly more brilliant. Ah, da, da, do, do. Oh, I need to head northwest, you know, by such and such to get home. They're children. So anyway, that said, I can imagine an environment in which a child has lost its way in the woods and it's getting dark and doesn't realize how far that uh, she had gone uh, chasing a butterfly or something until all of a sudden these three little kids appear as well and say, hey, are you lost? Yeah, I don't know where my mom and dad are. Say, hey, I think I know where they are. You know, my name's Danny and, you know, and this is Tabby and that's Ruthie and, uh, you know, just follow us. I think we know. Um, you want to hear some stories? Oh yeah. You know, and they maybe tell her a story about a, a guy once who was surrounded by lions and she goes, Oh, that sounds like fun. Oh no, this was before. This is before they were nice. You know, this is a nice when they would eat you. Uh, but God protected him, you know, and kept him safe. We don't have to worry when we're surrounded by things that scare us. Uh, and then the, uh, Tabby talks about a, a woman who actually died, who actually died, and yet the God of all things was even able to bring her back to life, uh, that nothing is too powerful for him, and we can always trust him in any circumstance. And then Ruthie talks about a time when a lady was scared and nervous, surrounded by people she didn't know, kind of like what it's like being in the woods and you're surrounded by the unknown. And yet the one person she did come to know was the God of Israel who took care of her. Who took care of her? And next thing you know, they're back at house. Oh, is that your house? It is. Thank you. Bye. And runs off in. And then while she's gone, they turn back into their glorious state. And it was Daniel the prophet. And it was Tabitha uh, uh, in the New Testament, uh, the deaconess. And it was uh, Ruth that we read of. Can we do that? I hope so. If we can't, I just know it's going to be better than that. Right? All right. So the last, the last letter I will read uh, kind of keeps that in mind. All right. And so, again, you have to imagine this is a letter written to you. So it says, hello, you don't know me. I live far in your future, the 560th year of the millennium, to be more exact. I'm getting very old now. But when I was a young child, you were the member of the God family who spent the most time leading my parents and me. So often you walked with me in the cool of the evening after dinner and let me ask you all the questions that came to my young mind. I was always afraid that I was taking up too much of your time until you explained that as a child of God, you could do many things in many places all at the same time. I didn't understand how, but at least it helped me to stop worrying that I was wasting your time. I remember asking you about what it was like the day the last trumpet sounded. I was enraptured by your description of feeling your feet lift off of the ground and feeling the air move past your skin, feeling a tingling electric power welling up inside of you and rippling outward through every minute part of your body as you were transformed from flesh and blood to spirit, from being a human being to being a God being and a member of his family forever. You told me it was hard to decide which of four things gave you the most joy that day. First, there was the amazing transformation of your body. 
Next was the incredible realization that the moment had finally come. That in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, everything you had struggled and hoped for was really, really, really coming to pass right at that moment. Third was the sight of those around you, your friends, your family, those you had prayed for and struggled beside, experiencing exactly the same indescribable moment that you were. And finally, being hugged for the first time by Jesus Christ face to face. Though it had been hundreds of years before, you described that moment as if it had occurred just that morning. I recall being emboldened by your willingness to share with me that day, and I asked you if you could show me what you really looked like instead of the normal appearance that you often wore for our visits. With a knowing look in your eye, you said that you would oblige, but that one, you'd have to tone it down greatly, and two, I would still have to step back a bit. As I did so, you began hovering about a foot off the ground, and then suddenly light seemed to explode from you, and I had to shield my eyes with my hands as if I were suddenly staring at the sun. I was able to squint and peek at you between my fingers, and I saw that you were clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Your head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and your eyes were like a flame of fire. Your feet were like the finest brass. And you spoke to me out of that brilliance and said that this was the existence that God planned for me too. And your voice was like the sound of many waters. I know I should have been terrified, but although I don't know how, you somehow prevented me from being afraid, allowing me to appreciate how glorious you are. Indeed, even after living so long now, and I write this with tears in my eyes at the recollection of it, you are still the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life. I've written this letter to your past self, the person you were before that day when you were fully born into the family of God to encourage you and to thank you for all of the selfless service you will provide my family and the world in the centuries ahead of you. With love, someone in your future who is counting on you to look in the mirror and see not only the present you, which so often seems to need so much work, but also the you that God has planned for you. Brethren, we're halfway through, right? We're halfway through this feast, and our clock is ticking, and we're going to go back to our jobs, we're going to go back to our burdens, we're going to go back to our taxes, we're going to go back to our uh, co-workers, our employees, let all of us in our conversations, in our meditations, in our prayers, in our study, in our reading, let us strive to make this time that's coming as real as possible. Make it real, filling your mind, filling your heart, because that time to come is more real than today. That time coming is more real than whether or not the sun comes up tomorrow or the stage in which I stand and the seats in which you sit. That time is more real. That 80 billion years into that future... The times we're living through now will be like nothing. Will be like nothing. 
And we will realize to the depth of our being that everything we're experiencing in those times was worth whatever it is that we have to go through today. Let's all work hard to make all of this real for each other because God assures us it is and it is coming.